It's so flipping long. It's so long. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I'm your host for today, Mark. I'm once again joined by my wonderful book friends, Gabriel, Virginia, and Corrine. So today, we've decided to challenge ourselves a little bit and read very long books only. So sort of by our definition of long book, we all had to read a book that was 400 pages at least or longer. And whether you want to call them big, thick, heavy, chonky, or some other adjective or name like doorstoppers, long books can kind of be a beast of their own sometimes, whether it's because of the complexity of the plot, the number of characters, or narrative style. Long books have a bit of a reputation for not being only time-consuming, but also kind of difficult to read, which I think definitely is true at times with many of these books. And I guess if you need hundreds and hundreds of pages to say something that you're trying to say, then it kind of makes sense that you need like more in-depth kind of coverage than you would in an average book. Otherwise, it's like, why are you taking hundreds and hundreds of pages to say it? So without further ado, I think we'll get right into it now. And we'll start out with Gabriel. You know, doorstoppers are handy for a lot of things. They can keep things propped open, maybe prop up a table leg, good for putting on your bookshelf if you want to wow your guests. I think that's what this one, it could do any of those. It could also be improvised tool. Sometimes they're even good to read. And whether or not this one is might be opinion based. In my opinion, I think it's worth a read. So as Mark mentioned, sometimes it's hard to tell whether an author actually needed all of the pages to tell their story. And whether the point is really like really obvious through those pages or whether maybe it gets a little lost. But, you know, sometimes that's life. And I think this sort of meandering approach to almost indie movie levels of what are we talking about here might be might be appealing to some people. Might be appealing to me. Sometimes it is. In this case, it is. Not always. And while we might have to do a check at the end to figure out who's talking about the longest book, I have a feeling I might be in the running, given just the sheer size of this one. So this book has far more than 400 pages and definitely didn't need more than half of those to tell the story. It is so long that it is fondly referred to by fans such as myself as the brick, because that's what it'll feel like when you're walking around with it. So Les Miserables, written by Victor Hugo, was published in 1862. The original French clocks in at 655,478 words. It's usually at least 1,200 pages, if not more, depending on your translation. The one that we have that I picked out of the library is (laughs) 1,432 pages. So it's a little bit on the longer side as far as Les Mis translations go. And there are a variety of translations available. So if you are someone who is maybe very interested in the art of translation or interested in how things can move through both different eras, different ways of talking about language, Les Mis is actually a really good one because there is a lot of scholarship around 
what each of the translations is like. People have strong opinions about it. Some abridge the novel, because as mentioned, there's a lot of pages that really don't need to be there. So some do abridge the novel and some kind of leave it in its true form. So I'm personally not a fan of taking up sections, even if I don't think they were necessary. So I made sure to pick a non-abridged version. Many translations also actually edit out Victor Hugo's political opinions, depending on when they were translated, or even kind of change them altogether. So you kind of have to be careful. So the most common one to find is the Norman Denny translation, which is one that I'm not a fan of at all. So when you are considering picking out this book, I would encourage you to sort of research which translation you're going for. I like Feinstock and McAfee, I think is how I say their names, or Donaher, which are both more recent translations. This one, I think, was one of the first. So it's got some old language in it in terms of accessibility. Maybe it's not the most accessible novel, but it's worth it. I promise. If you are a fan at all of the story, even if you don't like the musical, it's actually quite, it's similar, but it's actually quite a different feel. And so I would encourage you to consider it. So if you don't know Les Mis, what is it about? It's about many a thing. It's about too many things. But putting aside all the wide-ranging philosophy and politics that go into the story, which could be of interest, it's about a character named Jean Valjean. So Valjean is an escaped convict who is determined to change his life after meeting a bishop who shows him kindness despite his criminal past. In his journey towards living a better life, he adopts Cosette, a child who has suffered abuse at the hands of her foster family, while her mother suffers as sort of a single mother and sex worker in a world that values neither of these things. Valjean and Cosette are relentlessly pursued by the law, in particular Javert, a policeman who believes so strongly in the infallibility of the law that he is in denial that Valjean or anybody could truly change their ways. Alongside Valjean's story is the story of his adopted daughter, Cosette, and her lover, Marius. So Marius is a law student who becomes friends with Parisian revolutionaries who are plotting to rise up against the government. He's not actually as politically engaged as the group of law student activists and actually spends most of his time in a bit of a love triangle with Cosette and another character who's Cosette's ex-foster sister. This is one of those all the characters are related in like at least five different ways, not by blood necessarily, but they all have very interconnected pasts. It's very like Paris is a small town when it comes to Les Mis because everybody knows everybody. Everybody's got fingers in at least three different pies. I think this is really one of those ones where you could go into it with an interest for history or politics or kind of what Victor Hugo thought about the world at the time. Or if you're me, it's more about characters and character dynamics because there are a lot of things that are really interesting. So as Javert closes in on his pursuit of Valjean, and Valjean reaches out to his daughter, Suter Marius, the two also get caught up in that brewing rebellion. As I mentioned, there's more characters and lots of really interesting side plots, including a prison break, which didn't get picked up in any other adaption, despite being one of my favorite parts. And it's really just a complex story, but those two narratives are at the heart of it. So you have these young revolutionaries who are very idealistic about what France should look like, could look like and the ways that they interact with each other. Again, they are law students. They're also charity workers. They're also cafe goers. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very fun to sort of read it and think about the fact that the stories that we tell sometimes, I mean, they look quite different, but there's some elements that are at the heart of it that I would almost recognize in like a YA novel now. But of course, not written at all in the same way. But then you also have this very 
kind of deep conversation about what repentance looks like, what justice looks like between Valjean and Javert. It's not quite a dichotomy because as much as Javert represents the law, Valjean doesn't necessarily represent disorder or chaos. He just sort of represents maybe a more natural way of doing things. Of course, also should be mentioned, the title does like translate to The Miserable. It is a very sad book. There's a lot of character death. Most people do not get out of this one unscathed, if alive. So just keep that in mind. But also, of course, spans many, many years. So some of these people just die from like natural causes. It's okay. <laughs> there are a lot of characters, and you might not end up knowing all of them, but you'll probably have at least a few favorites. So, but fair warning when you're reading this, Les Mis has something that is referred to as Victor Hugo's digressions. And these digressions are essays that Hugo goes on with fairly little relevance to the plot. Usually they have a socio-political or philosophical meaning. They're vaguely connected with the story's contents, but that connection is tenuous. They're interesting tangents on their own, but unfortunately uh, they can derail the story pretty hard. So you should be prepared for them if you want to embark on this journey. One digression is the story of the bishop that Valjean encounters. So sort of connected, right? You can explore religion in French society. Another is the Battle of Waterloo. So the effects of Napoleon Bonaparte on French history. But another is the geography of the Paris sewer system, which talks about the role of city planning and urbanism, serves as a metaphor for Paris more broadly. The role of waste, Valjean's own journey. You can make arguments for why these are important. I hated them. And I still love Les Mis. So there's an argument to be made either way. So when when publishers try to abridge it, that's a lot of the stuff that they take out or they kind of like relegate to the appendices. So if you don't come across them in whatever version you're reading, they might be in an appendix somewhere. And then you get to make that choice for yourself in a little bit of a choose your own adventure style, whether or not you actually want to engage with the Paris sewer system. I mean, it adds something to the story experience because then it makes us all feel like brothers in arms after we've had to go through it. So if you'd like to be part of the read the entire Les Mis and now has a right to be kind of angry at Victor Hugo, you could do that. You could join us. We could all do this together. If it sounds like the sort of story that you'd enjoy, but you can't get through all the pages, or you need something to kind of encourage you that this story is something that you're going to like, that's okay. There's obviously a musical. I think that's usually what people know Les Mis as. There's a movie. You could always sample the anime Shoujo Gazette. If that doesn't do it for you, you could play Arm Joe, the 1998 Les Mis fighting game in which you can battle it out as Robojean, a character just named Judgment, or Pompon the Stuffed Rabbit. So if the story of Les Mis appeals to you, I would definitely check out one of these options and then maybe try another one to really just diversify your idea of the characters. So that is Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. All right. Thank you, Gabriel. It's always good to hear another angle of someone's favorite all-time books, as well as the kind of author self-insertions that you can sort of find in a lot of these longer books, the characters, the socio-historical aspects of it. Definitely very characteristic of a doorstopper book, I think. So next, I think we're going to go to Virginia. I think I'm going to go with the Street Fighter fighting game option, Gabriel. That would be my choice. So for today, I decided to choose a book that I couldn't fit into my most anticipated episode because we can only choose five. And I knew this episode was coming and this book is long-ish. So I figure I will uh, do this today instead. 
previously, we have only had the privilege to read her short story collections. And those are the only ones that have been translated so far. But now there is a full-length novel coming in February. And I am talking about Mariana Enriquez. And of course, her short story collection, The Danger of Smoking in Bed, is the one that got me into short stories, deciding that maybe that's something that I need to give it another try. So I am very, very much looking forward to reading this fooling novel and see what she does with that. The book is Our Share of Night. Awesome, awesome cover, I think. And it is supposed to be sort of like a horror uh, fantasy kind of novel. The story begins with a bit of a road trip between father and son. But this is not a fun road trip at all. There's nothing fun about this road trip. In fact, I'm going to say there's nothing fun about this book. The <laughs> That's a great start to this book chat. So Juan is taking his son Gaspar to see his in-laws to their big giant mansion because his wife Rosario and Gaspar's mother belongs to this super rich and very, very powerful family in Argentina. His wife has died and they told him it was a car accident. Juan has his doubts. He doesn't believe that that is the case. But that's what they said. And this, of course, affected both of them very, very much. His son, Gaspar, wakes up frequently in the morning crying because he dreamt of his mother. Juan is a dying man. He has had this chronic illness. He has many operations. All of them didn't really cure him. It just basically kind of prolonged his life. And he knows he's also not long for this world. But he will do anything and everything to protect his son Gaspar from danger. And we're not talking about this abstract kind of danger. We're talking about real danger, especially after last night when they were at the hotel and Gaspar said he saw a woman. First in the hallway and then in their hotel room. Juan tried to tell Gaspar, this woman is not real. It is kind of like an echo. It is a manifestation and this is the way you center yourself to will this woman away. And Gaspar did it really easily. And that is what Juan fears. Gaspar has inherited his powers, his ability. And Juan is the medium. He has been found by the order, basically this cult. And it was one of the surgeons that discover that Juan has something different during one of the operations. And so they basically took him away from his family, telling his family that, hey, you don't have the ability to take care of your son. Let us take him and we will give him much better care. And basically, they just kind of took him away from his family. He's hoping that his son Gaspar does not have any of that, but it seems like he has inherited his ability and also he is much more powerful. And that is what he's so afraid of because if the order finds out that Gasper also can become a medium, which is basically a conduit that they can use to communicate with their dark lord, then Gasper is going to be forever and ever in their control. Because they know that one is dying, they are going to try to get Gaspar to become the next medium, become the substitute. And so one has to do something to keep his son safe. And he will do anything, including hurting his son. If you know Mariana Enrique's work, you will know that she excel at that rawness, excel at exposing that ugliness of humanity. And that is what she does really, really well. 
And she's not afraid of putting you into a lot of discomfort and shocking your system with these really kind of gross and disgusting, whether it's her prose or whether it's her imagery or whether it is the themes in the story. And, and that is what I love about her stories because it is so raw. And our share of night in this fooling novel is also like that, but it's, a, it's an unpleasant read. As I said earlier, the father that it sounds like this fatherly love that he has for his son, and, and he does, one does have that, but it's any sympathy that you feel towards him very frequently turns out because he's also very emotionally and physically abusive to his son. It's really hard to find anything to like about many of these characters who are really stuck in a really impossible situation because they are much bigger powers at work that is affecting them. And even if he's doing to protect his son, it's just, it's just hard to care. So I have to say, like, be, to be honest, I, I procrastinate in this assignment. And so by the time I decide that this is probably a book that I would normally put down, I, I can't. I, I was at the point of no return, so I had to finish reading it. And there were many, many singular moments, just like her short story, there were many singular moments and scenes that are really, really good. And those were kind of what kept me going. They were just so imaginative, despite being really, really gross. They were just really, really vivid. And it was so good. Like, And she's really good at that. And it's those simple moments that really sustain the book. However, as a whole, as a whole novel, I just didn't find that it, it come together the way I want it to be. You got your first section of what I just described, where it's the father, one, trying to save his son from the cult. The second section was about Gasper growing up and trying to find refuge among his friends because his father was being like just really horrible to him and he doesn't understand what his father was doing. So there was that story. It ends in another traumatic kind of experience with them. And then it goes into the Rosario story and we learn a little bit about the history of the order and how that cult came to be. And that part just didn't work for me at all. And then it kind of goes into this like, at the end is when Gaspar is trying to deal with all the trauma that he has in his life and trying to learn how to live with it and, and how to recover from it. And then it, of course, kind of into like final showdown with, with the cult. And it's just all the individual bits and pieces just don't really go together. And it was really disappointing for me because I, I just love this author a lot. So it just, it just didn't work. And all of this is against the backdrop of before and after the dirty war in Argentina. So there was a lot of talk and, and a lot of descriptions of people being disappeared and because they were political descendants and, and they were finding like massive graves that has all the bodies in it and trying to identify them because people have like just been disappeared. But it's also like at the same time, conveniently, it was also when the order was trying to do a lot of experimentations with people to find a medium so that they can like talk to their dark lord. So there's also the rich and the powerful and, and what they have control over in the whole country in addition to what the government was doing. So there was just sort of this like kind of supernatural stuff put against this historical background in the story, which it could be interesting. It's just, I don't know, the story just doesn't come to me together. Maybe that's why I should just stick with the short stories for this particular offer, at least. But who am I to say? Because New York Times love it. Kirkus Review loves it. 
we got a quote from Sophia Moreno Garcia, Paul Tremblay, Alan Moore, Kelly Lang, John Langan, all these giants in the horror genre. They all love this book. So clearly, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's coming up in February. So if you're looking for sort of a horror novel that is not by an American author that you want to kind of look into what other parts of the world are doing with this genre, I think this is still like maybe something to give it a try. Clearly, it's not my thing. And just be prepared that it's going to be a very unpleasant read because just this, just nothing, nothing heartwarming, nothing nice about it in some way. And I I don't know. But there are just some scenes in there that are so well done that I think it will still stick with me forever. I know I'm going to read it anyway because I like the offer, but it was just slightly disappointing. So this might be a keep it fictional first for me that I'm actually suggesting a book that I have mixed feelings about, but um, maybe I just need to sit with it for a little bit because I just finished it this morning. Maybe I just haven't processed everything and maybe I just don't recognize the brilliance of it. Anyway, it is uh, Our Share of Night and it is by Mariana Enrique. Thank you, Virginia. Another interesting sort of punctuated episodes of pain, sadness, and trauma from both yourself and Gabriel so far. So there's a bit of an alignment between the two so far in that way, I think. We'll see if that trend continues in a little while. But first, we're going to go to our existential question for today. And the question I posed to my book friends was, what is like the largest book you have ever read or owned in terms of like page count or just like the physical dimensions of the thing do you have like some big giant book you can't even fit into a bag like what kind of stuff do you got in your house my friend also has a copy of les mis based on my recommendation but he did his research because i told him get a better translation and some of the better translations are also absolutely unrealistic physical dimensions in terms of physically too large to put in your backpack just on the sort of like surface area of the book, not how dense the book is. Like it's actually a physically large book. I think there are illustrations in the version that he got and annotations. And it's sort of like, there's already enough. There's already enough. And so he has been going very slowly through that book just based on the fact that it is difficult to carry around. And he kind of has to read it at home. Yeah. So Layman's is the biggest book I've read. It's also just unwieldy as as an item yeah i think personally from mine i actually went to the measurements to see how big it was but there's this series of books by a nonfiction writer named Giorgio agamben there's a large collection of many of his works into one volume and the actual volume is something about 10 inches by seven inches in terms of like the height and width and then the thickness is more than one inch thick and just having that book on my shelf i saw that used bookstore and just decided to buy on a whim that I have not yet got around to reading yet. It's just sitting there slowly breaking my bookcase, basically, as I await the time where I finally get around to reading it. Fair enough. I'm wearing my very special pin today, which is I like big books. And I do. I do. I have a special place on my bookshelf where I put my giant oversized materials because you have to really think about earthquake safety when you're arranging bookshelves that are looming directly over your bed where your prone body sleeps. I think the longest book that I probably have on my shelf, although I didn't I didn't actually take it out and see how many pages it is, is Bronte's by Juliet Barker, is I want to say. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I really should have loaded up. Okay. Hold on. Yes, uh, it is The Brontes by Juliet Barker, which is a biography deconstructing the Bronte myth, 
And I love the Bronte myth so much. But it is printed in insy-wincy tiny font. And the pages are almost like onion paper. So they're so thin and so translucent. And that book, like, it, it's thick. It's thick. Like, it's a good, good two inches just going through every minute, small detail of the Bronte's life in excruciating detail. And I love it. I'm also a big fan of long books. I link doesn't really matter to me. And we just reordered some copies for the library. And Leanne was just like, what are these things? How do you even read them? So the longest book I would say probably is the Stromlight Archive series by Brandon Sanderson. They range just from 1258 pages to 1328, 1243, to, and 1296. So all over a thousand pages. And together, that's like 5,000 pages of goodness. And I really do think Sometimes a long book, like even if it's long, does not mean that it takes long to read because if you're a good writer and if there's a good book, a good story, it just flies by. Whereas a book could be 30 pages and it could be painful to read. So I think that's probably the longest in terms of size-wise. It's probably my complete Farside collection that is in the collector's kind of a thing. And then that thing is a break. So I can throw that at people, I'm sure. I think one of the questions Mark was about to ask was whether... The, the the books that we have can be used as weapon and that one can definitely be a weapon. So There is a complete works of William Shakespeare that I have absolutely used as a weapon against people. I've also witnessed there's an all-in-one Death Note edition of all the different volumes, all in one giant volume that could also be very much used to smack someone. It's, it's quite large. It's like, like it's kind of the same dimensions, but it's just so thick. Like you have, I hate to say this is Brad Virginia, but you have to crack the spine when you're reading because it it's paperback. <laughs> that, that, such a thing is not physically possible. Not just, physically it, You possible. just can't hold it otherwise. Yeah, as a fan of hypertext fiction too, I think sometimes the technical like books and stories that we've read have also just never really properly been put into physical form. So I know that Homestuck rivals the Bible. I know there are physical copies of the Homestuck series, but I don't know if they can actually be put together physically in the same way, especially because just <laughs> half of it is dialogue <laughs> and there's not a lot of actual discussion or like um, descriptions of things. And so I know that the sheer word count is up there, but are they saying anything of value? 90% of the time, not, especially in Homestuck. But I don't think the actual individual books are that big. So again, it's weird when something gets taken out of one format into another because they're not technically individual books. But if you were to purchase them, they are individual books. Alrighty then. I think we'll move on to our next book then with Corrine. Yes. So in 1984, two masked men broke into the house of Izaki Glico, president's mother's house which was adjacent to his own house. There they tied her up. They stole the key to the president's house and broke in and subdued his family. When Kasuhisha Izaki tried to reason with the kidnappers, offering them money or a bribe in return for sparing himself and his family, they said, be quiet, money is irrelevant. The two kidnappers uh, kidnapped the president, took him to a warehouse where he was kept for three days before eventually escaping. When he returned unharmed, a letter was sent to the police 
and eventually to the media talking about what the crime they had done and who had to suffer. Thus started the affair of the monster with 21 faces, also called the Phantom with 21 faces or the Mystery Men with 21 faces. A crime of kidnapping, financial extortion, bribery, and poisoning that lasted from March 1984 to August 1985. This group, a shadowy organization of unknown quantity and quality, had a strange, very public extortion scheme with various candy companies in the 80s. They published letters to the media saying that they had laced $21 million worth of candy with potassium cyanide. Of course, when people read about this, they refused to buy the candy and it was quickly pulled off the shelf and destroyed, leading to a loss of $20 million and the layoff of 450 people. Suddenly, they published another letter saying that they were totally cool with this company and everything was fine and they turned their attention to a different candy company, Moringa saying exactly the same thing, that they had laced certain amounts of candy and released it to the public filled with poison. However, in this case, 21 packages were actually found that were laced with poison, with large labels on them saying, danger, do not consume. With the public uproar over this very fabulous case, um, the police superintendent in charge of the case committed suicide. After this, the monster with 21 faces sent one last letter to the press taunting the police and crowing over the success of their crimes. And after that, they disappeared. Now, the statute of limitations on the kidnapping and the attempted poisoning have both run out. Over one million police officers have worked on this case to no avail. They did manage to identify two suspects that they refer to as the fox-eyed man and videotape man. However, no actual people have been charged with any of the crimes associated with the group, the monster with 21 faces. This is one of Japan's most notorious unsolved crimes and mysteries. And it is the germ of the idea that Queen of Mysteries, Kaoru Takamura, has taken and germinated into... Oh, a whopper of a big book. And it's kind of cheating for me to talk about this book because in reality, it is one book that when uh, Soho decided to publish, they divided it into two volumes, probably because it's so flipping long. It's so long. And if they tried to publish it in one book, it would be unreadable. Quite frankly, this book was not only difficult to read, but like difficult to hold, difficult to like physically hold it's heavy and it's kind of weirdly printed and i and again i did want to crack the spine just so i could actually read all the letters and the words on the side anyways so yes this book lady joker was published originally in japan in 1997 it is the first book of karu takamura's that's actually been translated into english which is kind of a shame because she is again known as the queen of mysteries the queen of crime in japan and this first volume was published in 2021. And it, again, it takes this idea of this group of financial extortionists and kidnappers, but in her kind of masterful hands, turns it into more of an examination of class and society and systems and outsiders in Japan that starts uh, 
all the way back in 1947, where Seiji Okamura sends a rambling letter accusing the beer company Hinode of discriminating against himself and specifically three Burakimin employees. So the Burakumin are a stigmatized um, ethnic group. And he essentially accuses the company of firing them because of their background. And this accusation, this letter kind of sits in their HR department like a ticking time bomb until 50 years it explodes. And in a way that no one saw coming. This letter, this accusation, this finger pointing of discrimination against this group eventually leads to a horrible death, a car accident, a kidnapping, and a scheme. Seizo Monoy, who is a pharmacist, is recently widowed, but not too sad about it, and has a daughter who he doesn't really care for, decides to dream up a scheme to make the company pay for their various ills. He is going to kidnap and blackmail the president and CEO of the Hinoda Brewery Company for all that they are worth. To do this, he enlists his racetrack friends, which include a bitter washed-up cop, a lathe operator who has recently suffered from a horrible injury, a nihilistic finance bro who is definitely my favorite, and a truck driver with a daughter who has a developmental disability named Lady, who becomes kind of like the team's raison d'être and the titular Lady Joker. So this story bounces around between points of view, between the team, the cops, the reporters, the activists for the Burakumin, the criminal underground, right-wing nationalism, big government, financial extortion friends. John Powers in an NPR interview said this novel does for the beer industry what Moby Dick did for whaling. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. The first book is kind of like setting up all of the dominoes. So we're getting to know all the players. We get to know the criminals really well. We start to get to know some of the journalists and some uh, the, the president who's about to get kidnapped. Um, it's all kind of set up like a chess game. Oh, boy. You do kind of cheer for the criminals. I mean, that just seems kind of... They're not good people. No one's a good person in this. Everyone here is garbage. Everyone kind of deserves what's coming to them. But you do kind of find yourself empathizing a little bit more with them because, again, this is not just a, a fun crime heist book, because it isn't. It is more of an examination of what does it take to exist in systems in contemporary Tokyo society and what does it mean when you are outside of the system. So she's contrasting the life of like those tightly controlled systems of the police, of the government, of business, all those people who are able to play those roles, and then contrasting it with the criminals who, despite themselves, are outside of the system and unable to profit from, from the systems in place to help them because of things like being part of the Burakumin group. One of the characters is also from the Zainichi Korean group. Some of them have dealing with mental illness. Some of them are just laboring in the class and unable to raise themselves. Some of them have screechy daughters and a pharmacy that just doesn't ever take off. So it's about class, but then also about how everything is corrupt so you can never get ahead. Oh, and it's so long. It's so long. 
It's so long. And I, 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 I could, I could see why Takamura is like really, really well respected because there are parts of the writing where I was like kind of drawn into like her spell of being like, oh yeah, that's really interesting, and oh, we're gonna talk about manufacturing post World War II and like the Coke sector. Awesome, interesting, well researched. But I will admit that about every ten pages, I promptly fell asleep. It was just a lot to take in at one time. And especially if the book is going to be like in total 1200 pages, it's like, is it really worth like, is it worth the the struggle? And I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm going to hedge my bets because I, I have volume two at home that I will probably read if only to be fair to it. But if you're looking for something that you can read, yeah, just something that you can read. <laughs> I don't think this is it. However, if, like me, you suffer from insomnia, I cannot give you a better prescription. Lady Joker, Volume 1. Thank you, Corrine. Much like in Gabriel's book, I feel like we're going to learn a lot about Japanese society in the 1980s if we read Lady Joker and the various social groups that, that play a role in public life, as well as their cat, dog, and some radical pharmacists at the same time. Okay, moving on from that. So today I will be talking about A Perfect Spy by John Le Carre. Le Carre for me is one of my favorite authors back in our the first episode of my, that I was on of Keep It Fictional. We we're talking about our top 10 favorite books. I had Le Carre's Bio Comes In From The Cold on my top 10 list that unfortunately did not get talked about in that episode. But as I've sort of gone back and forth, Le Carre is for me, it's hard to choose just one of his books that would be my favorite of his. In that case, I happened to pick A Spy Who Came In From The Cold. But I've read A Perfect Spy once about a decade or so ago. It was very much one of those books that does not immediately hit you in its full impact, I don't think. It's one of those books that just kind of sits with you in various regards. And because of that, I didn't want to put it on my top 10 list. But now that I have the opportunity to reread it for this podcast and to sort of hopefully instill a little bit of what this book is really about. So just a bit about La Carie, first as an author and person. He is a former employee of MI5 domestically in the UK before becoming a member of MI6 internationally, working as an officer in Germany during the Cold War of the late 1950s and early 1960s. He began his writing career while still active in the service, which led him to adopt the pen name John Le Carie, whereas his real name is David Cornwell. In the early 1960s, he was forced to leave the surface after his identity was blown by the infamous Soviet spy Kim Philby, who Le Carre has written about somewhat in his autobiographical writings. His fictional work draws from his insights from working in the spy and intelligence agencies, such as the sort of flawed or realistic aspects of his characters, the complexity of the plots involving many people and many organizations, departments, diplomats, and others, whom often have conflicting aims, as well as often uncertain or questionable motivations for what they're doing. A Perfect Spy may be, more than any other of his fictional books, Le Carre's most autobiographical, or the one that draws most on his personal life to demonstrate the kinds of experiences, ideas, and influences that lead someone towards and away from life in espionage. Le Carre passed away in December of 2020, so just over two years ago now, but just recently, in the end of 2022, a collection of his personal correspondence was published, which also reveals a lot of his history, interests, and other aspects of his life as a writer and intelligence agent that gives another close-up personal look at his life. So even after his passing, he's definitely still 
a very influential and important writer in the British spy novel tradition, perhaps to many of the most sort of quote unquote literary of the different spy novelists. So he definitely has like a somewhat different reputation from like the various Tom Clancy's and others in that sort of genre that somewhat get lumped into more mass popular fictions, quote unquote, depending on how you feel about those kinds of distinctions. But anyways, in A Perfect Spy, we are introduced to Magnus Pym, head of intelligence operations for the British in Vienna, Austria, and formerly an agent in the Czech Republic. He now runs his own agents as responsible for maintaining close ties to Britain's allied partner, the United States, and ensuring that the Brits stay in the Americans' good favor in this the intelligence war, as this is still written in the early 1980s, so the Cold War is still going on at this time. Magnus is also married to his wife, Kate, who herself is a former member of the intelligence services, as well as their son, Tom. After the death of Magnus's father, Magnus is scheduled for some much-deserved time off. The only problem is, when he's due to return from the funeral services in England, Magnus never turns up. He essentially has disappeared into thin air, with no one knowing where exactly he has gone to. Having utilized every trick he knows to throw off any traces of his movements, Magnus has returned to a secluded small town inn. We don't quite know sure where, but based on the description, probably a rural area somewhere in the United Kingdom. But as the readers were as in the dark as to where exactly Magnus is as everyone else. Here he stays with an old acquaintance, Miss Stubber, and her obstinate tortoise shell cat, Toby. Miss Stubber and Pim seem to have known each other for many years, decades perhaps even, though Miss Stubber only knows Magnus as Mr. Canterbury. She even offhand remarks that to Toby that she knows so little about Magnus that he could even be the Prime Minister and they'd only know from watching the television. This immediately raises questions to the reader about how exactly Magnus has maintained this kind of secret hideaway that no one knows about, but yet still knows these people on a kind of intimate level. He has this kind of second hidden aspect or persona that he's kept hidden from everyone else for so long. The purpose of Magnus's escape has been planned with the purpose of writing uh, not quite a memoir of sorts, but more of a self-revealing or a self-confession of his deeds and crimes, his virtues and sins as best as he can. Since Magnus has grown weary of his life, has been maintaining so many secrets and deceptions has sort of wrought in his kind of inner, inner life, his inner turmoil that he can't reveal to anyone because of all the various shards and aspects of it that are related to his secret life, his home life, and all these different things they can't share with any one person. It's kind of led to this feeling inside that he has to sort of lay it all bare, to lay all these truths and secrets of his childhood, first beginning with his family life, run by his con artist's father, who, by the way, Le Carre had his own father, was an infamous con artist as well, his dedicated court of law of followers, set of revolving women that discarded as needed, to all sorts of schemes and stocks, real estate and commodities that his father got up to in uh, his childhood that sort of led to a very tumultuous kind of on and off boom and bust kind of life. Within the story, I believe the Tim's father, Rick, had somewhat around 800 shell companies that were used to try and for tax evasion, all these various other purposes that kind of instill in the young Magnus a sort of sense that what's true is not really actually true. There's all these deceptions and ways of getting around the truth to get at what you really want without having to tell the truth. You don't have to be who you appear to be, essentially. This is what he gets from his father for a long time. Before he escapes to life in a boarding school with his sadistic schoolboy friends, um, as many of those boarding schools in England were at the time in the 1950s when he was at the school, to later in Switzerland where he begins his own career of deception, fooling his own father to thinking he's studying law when actually he's just working as a waiter doing whatever to try and get the hell away from him. 
It's at this boarding house in Switzerland that they also meet an enigmatic Austrian man named Axel, whom he sort of strikes up a special friendship with. But we don't really see how pivotal this relationship is with Axel until much later in the novel, what their actual nature of their friendship and relationship is. So we'll sort of get into that a little bit more later on, but I don't want to give away too much because Axel is actually a very important character in this book. Many of the important details are revealed very stepwise, very methodically in a careful fashion because it's this is a 600-page book. This is a doorstopper novel, let's be honest here, that you're not going to get a whole whack of reveals all at once. I don't think any of our novels really had much of that today. Definitely very uh, slow burn reveal of these kind of secrets, so I don't want to give away too much about this. So the time when Magnus is eventually recruited into the foreign service by Jack Brotherhood, a man who would initially inspire Magnus, the kind of sense of duty and loyalty to his country and importance, but really later on, he sort of becomes more off-putting that starts to see the flaws in serving one's country in secret, the kinds of things that he's made to do essentially in the name of justice. But as Magnus sort of says in his reflections that justice is only as good as their servants, and it becomes increasingly clear to Magnus that there are some very big flaws with the so-called servants of justice in England and abroad. The self-revealing of Magnus isn't just for himself as his own desire to finally put into words his inner conflicts, self-deceptions, public deceptions, disappointments, resentments, and his desire to break the chain of bounty from one chain of command to other, being his father, his schoolmasters, priests, or superiors like Jack Brotherhood, and so many others with their own sort of self-serving rules and dictates that he has to follow throughout his life. And Magnus sort of states at the outside of his writing that whoever Pym is to you, whoever you are or were, here is the last of many versions of the Pym you thought you knew. Address this towards a, a reading audience as well as especially his son Tom, because he hopes in doing so he'll sort of impart to him about the line of men he comes from and the kind of inner and outer torment that's been wrought by this lies and deceptions of his life as a spy, the lies and deceptions of his father as a con artist and to sort of instill in him that this is not the kind of life he wants for him. He wants him to kind of break this kind of intergenerational string of lying and deception and general like moral murkiness that comes from his family. Essentially, in this memoir writing, it sort of jumps back and forth in time from the present as he's sort of talking to Mrs. Dubber and other people to back in time through a different periods of his life, as well as his own kind of running commentary on those events in his life. So definitely another kind of doorstopper trope of the author within the book, who's also commenting on actions that happened in the past is kind of a very metafictional kind of aspect that pervades this book a lot from the sort of audio, self-autobiographical aspects of Le Carre's life there in it to these kinds of book within a book. Meanwhile, back in England, there's, of course, Mary, Magnus's wife, who's sort of grappling with many questions and issues that are going on. It's like, where could Magnus have gone? Why? And how is she supposed to handle Jack Brotherhood and the rest of the British service, turning her life upside down in a both figurative and very literal sense, like turning up the whole property, like rummaging through all their stuff, scrutinizing any moment, any object, and any thought that might indicate whether herself or Magnus may have betrayed England to the foreign enemies, be it the Soviets, the Czechs, wh whoever else, very much themselves trying to do their own investigation to seek the sort of quote-unquote truth, you could call it, or the facts of the case, whatever you want to call it. So there's also this kind of like very investigative aspect of Pim's own sort of self-investigation as well as the British services, like out outwardly kind of worldly kind of investigation of what's going on. Mary is sort of left to deal with her own kinds of self-doubts and lack of understanding of how to comprehend the life she has lived with Magnus, how little they actually know of each other that was both out of necessity and Magnus's work, but also what was sort of like a convenient kind of 
looking away of not actually sort of confronting or thinking about what their life together actually was like? Was it actually as rosy as she thought it was? Or was it actually just a facade that kind of was put up as a defensive kind of mechanism as a way, so to speak? With each of the different chapters, it also shifts in perspective. Uh, there's kind of like a kaleidoscopic effect of, of the different characters see different aspects of Magnus's life from different angles, different combinations to try and sort of piece together who this person actually was, who's what's his life and personality actually like. So I sort of mentioned the chapters that are from Magnus's perspective, kind of shift between the present and the past. There's Mary's perspective on the shattered present and Jack Brotherhood as well gets his own chapters, as well as his team of specialists from the foreign office who are trying to track down Magnus and keep up a happy facade in front of his American counterparts about the sudden disappearance of this high-ranking official and their increasingly sort of flimsy claim that he's in grieving for his dead father and can't be summoned back to work to deal with the Americans more or less. If you like a deep and intimate look at a coming-of-age kind of story and into in-depth psychological portrait of characters or interest in a densely plotted story full of twists and surprises or just want to read the most intricate work by the great late author John Le Carre, then you may also like A Perfect Spy. All righty. Thank you, everyone. Hopefully it wasn't too big of a uh, pain, either in your mind or your wrist or hand, to read these doorstopper books. And I hope your listeners also found something that you are interested in as well. Just dedicate your well-earned time off to enjoy. So that's all for us today. I'd like to thank again, Gabriel, Kareen, and Virginia. And we will see you again next time. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.